This episode of Shaun of the South is brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy, the fisherman, the woodcarver, and the Southern Baptist, who always said the best cure for idle hands is to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife. Hey, you're listening to Shaun of the South. Let me get behind me right now. It's thunder and rain. Thunder and rain.
interrupting this normal broadcast to bring you an emergency update, an emergency update. Local for parts of Northwest Florida and parts of South Alabama. There's a snake, snake advisory, a snake advisory. There are too many snakes in Northwest Florida, South Georgia, South Alabama, too many snakes. I saw a snake underneath my sofa just the other day, and I bought me a little mess of my britches. The thing, it, it kind of weaved across the floor just like Lucifer would. I don't know. Luckily, however, I, I do know exactly what to do in these situations. I come from country people, and country people know how to handle snakes. One, we always remain calm. Remain calm. Two, you lock yourself in the pantry and you set your couch on fire. What are we going to do, my wife said to me. What are we going to do? And I said, we. Honey, you're on your own. I'm moving to Canada. Snakes. God, I can't stand them. Sorry to say. I can't stand them. I'm a strapping man, I guess. I mean, look at me. I mean, I like to go strapping at least twice a week. I don't know. No amount of strapping can make anybody like snakes, especially not me. I hate them so much. And I can't even finish telling you what I'm telling you right now. I'm sorry. This, this whole thing's just going to have to keep on going without me. <laughs> the Associated Press reported that there were enough snakes taken over the South that an emergency situation needed to be enacted. Those were the exact words. Taking over the South. Snakes. They didn't say migrating. They didn't say, say building summer cottages in Orange Beach. They said taking over the South. Last year, local governments deputized 600 snake hunters to handle this crisis. Don't get your hopes up. After a year of snake killing Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, hunters have only managed to kill, get ready, 61 snakes. Like my aunt would say, well, shrimp migrants. I don't mean to complain. I certainly don't mean to complain. But I can kill at least 70 cottonmouths just backing out of my driveway on a summer day. What's going on? We got snake people everywhere. We got people with shotguns. We got, we got folks with, with deer antlers mounted to the hoods of their trucks. And we can only kill 61 snakes. Now, I'm no statistic. I'm no person with statistics. But can't 600 men with shotguns at least kill enough snakes to fill up a shoebox? want to blow this out of proportion. That's not my that's not my intent here. But this snake situation, this is a serious crisis facing North America. And I wish I were kidding. You'd have to pardon me. You'd have to pardon me, but, but I'm a little worried about this. I'm worried about it because ophiologists, and that's, that's someone who studies snakes, snakes as a whole, not, not a singular snake like you do in biology class. No, these are, these are certified scientists. They predict that migrating snakes will blanket 24 thirds of Alabama and Florida within the next 10 minutes. We're talking 33 foot pythons that could strangle a teddy bear just for kicks. Some of these things can tip the scales at 200 pounds. They got names like Albert or Justin or George. George. As it turns out, George is a lot faster than your wife is. Or your mother-in-law. Or your Aunt Flossie. 
So remember, from the National Association for Emergency Broadcasts and Ophiologist Scientists, <laughs> two things you ought to do in a situation like this during such, a, such an important snake update is, one, remain calm, and two, lock yourself in the pantry and let your wife take care of business with the garden hoe. Thank you, and now we return you to your normal broadcast. We're going to have another tune here from Thunder. Right, Thunder.
We have hurricanes in our part of the world, northwest Florida, where I'm from. We have hurricanes, and when they come, you get a little bit of warning. And warning is not a good thing because when you have, when you have a warning, that gives you time to worry about something. When you've got time to worry about something, the scenario that's, that, that you're worried about gets bigger and bigger and bigger in your head. You start hearing stories about people who didn't evacuate from the hurricane fast enough. And, and so the wind sucked the roof off their house and it killed their granny. And it, it lifted a, a, a pack of playing cards off of somebody's dinner table. And it, it threw these cards so hard with the gusts of wind that these cards were found embedded in telephone poles and plate glass windows, playing cards. And these things scare you, and so you pack up everything you own, every wedding photograph, every piece of underwear that you have retired, and you put it in some sort of container. Any container will do, Tupperware containers. You find yourself loading loading all sorts of containers when it's time to evacuate for a hurricane, and you head out of town with your in-laws in the same car because it's, it's, very, it's very important to stay together when you evacuate. And you find yourself in a big, long, long line of traffic that just never ends. We don't have traffic like that in our part of the world for you over here. That's just a 5 o'clock afternoon, I guess. I hadn't been to Colorado in a long time long time. And we came here for a very specific purpose. We came here because my father used to be a steel worker when he was alive. And this was one of his places. He lived in a little trailer outside Colorado Springs just for a short period of time working, working to make money. money. He was what you call a boomer at that period. He, he went where the work was. He'd been everywhere for work. He'd gone to Tennessee, top parts of Georgia, Gone to Colorado, Oklahoma. He'd been everywhere. A boomer will do that. They'll go where the work is good. And my father, the steel worker, a man who wore denim every day of his life and a pair of leather boots to work, leather boots that had to have mud stains and scuffs on them in order to, to feel like he was part of the steel workers' union, local number 10. He would take a brand new pair of boots, and I could see him outside. He'd take them boots, and he would hit them against the gravel and against the side of the house, against the siding, and he would scuff them up, and then he would wear them, and he would stomp through mud puddles. And I saw him out there doing that one day. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, son, only idiots wear brand-new pairs of boots. Boots are meant to be worn out. He said, do you know what the men on the job site would call me if I showed up in a brand-new pair of these, of these leather boots? Of course, nowadays you can buy boots all scuffed up and stained, and, and they look all worn and broken in. But back then, boots came, and they were stiff, and it took about ten good years to break them in to just feel like, like you could wear them. And then by the time they'd just gotten broken in, it was about the time they'd develop a hole in the sole, and it was time for a new pair of boots. That's how things were back then. You only had a few choices. My father only had a few choices of blue jeans. Blue jeans were, were, they were an industry that only made one kind of product, and that was one cut, one style of blue jeans. My father would take me into the Western Wear store up in town, about 30 minutes away, we'd walk in, we'd get one or two pairs of jeans, blue jeans, one style, one cut, 
and they were the worst fitting pair of blue jeans you ever had in your life. They would, they would hug you around the regions of your body that I shall not mention because this is a family show. They'd hug you in that region until you could not have children in your adult years. They would render you, they would render you un, unfit for marriage. And, and after about four years of wearing these stiff blue jeans, after, after using them to play outside and get grass stains on, you would, you would end up with the best pair of blue jeans you ever had in your life. That's how you got a good fitting pair of blue jeans. That's, that's how the old world was. My father was from the old world. Wore denim, wore blue jeans, wore boots every day of his life. I lived in that little camper. It was a 16-foot camper, Colorado Springs, and he worked on the steel. He worked on big frame structures, skeleton frames of large buildings and structures that were welded and bolted together and he hung from a rope and harness tied off from columns and he would he would weld column splices and lap splices all day until his face was black and his hearing was shot and his hands hurt he would come home and he would eat beans and weenies in that little trailer my mother lived with him for a little while he loved that place he loved he loved Pikes Peak more than anything. He loved Pikes Peak. First time he ever went up there, he got sick to his stomach. He said he couldn't handle the altitude. His ears started to ring. His head got lightheaded, and he started feeling all buzzy. And he had to lay down. He had to lay down. And it bothered him. My father didn't like to be, my father didn't like to be conquered or mastered by anything. Especially not altitude, I guess. But we were flatlanders. Oh, we're flatlanders. Where I live now in Florida, it's so flat that if you, if you leave the state and you go somewhere like maybe, oh, Atlanta or, or Louisiana where there's some hills and you just take a walk outside and you go up just a little bit of incline, you will break a sweat and you will start saying four-letter words up at the sky and pray, pray that you can make it home. My father was a flatlander. He was a flatlander and he made himself adjust to Pikes Peak, he didn't want to be mastered by that mountain. He didn't want to be mastered by it. And so finally, he was able to handle that altitude. He loved Colorado. It's his favorite place. He took us here on vacation a few times. We had a little camper, a, a little pop-up trailer, Apache pop-up. It was, a, it was one that you had to crank up outward from a box, a big box you tied the hood behind your car. Pop-up trailers used to be all the rage. You don't see them much anymore. You don't see them much anymore. Basically, it looks like a, like a pop-up book for children, only you can sleep in it. Our pop-up camper only slept a few people. It had, it had no refrigerator, no air conditioning. It had nothing but, but screens and a little sink that you had to pump and at night time, if you ate, if you ate food that disagreed with you, the entire camper knew about it. <laughs> it was like sleeping inside a cardboard box. So I slept on one little mattress on one side of the trailer, and my father slept on the other side during these vacations. And he would take us for walks. Cheap, cheap activities were important on a vacation for a family like us, we were blue collar. We didn't have a whole lot of money, and my father found ways of travel that were just almost free. I can remember once driving through town, and my father, my father had me in the seat next to him. He said, "All right, all right, don't say a word. 
We're going to walk into that there hotel. And we're going to go into that little dining room. He said, inside that dining room, you're going to see eggs, you're going to see bacon, sausage. He said, they call it a continental breakfast. He, he said, they only give it to people who are real quiet. Real quiet. He said, can you be real quiet? I said, yes, sir. He said, even if somebody talks to you who's part of the staff who has a little name tag on, can you be real quiet? Even when they talk to you? I said, I, I said yes, sir. He took me by the hand, walked in, walked into that little hotel Walked into that little dining room, everybody there was sitting down eating breakfast. We got ourselves a big old plate, bacon, sausage, eggs. We sat down, we were eating, and this man came up, and he had a little name tag on that said, Manager. My father looked at him. He said, Sir, are you staying here? My father said, Of course I'm staying here. What do you mean am I staying here? I just checked in last night. He said, oh, Hmm. The man looked at me, he said, how you enjoying your stay here, son? And I just nodded my head at him, and I smiled. And the man finally left us alone. My father said, quick, get up there and get you another plate. Your mama needs breakfast, too. <laughs> so we packed another plate, and we hit the road, and we got back to our little campsite. And my mother said, where'd you get all this? He said, well, we paid for it up in town. She ate her breakfast while looking at the campfire. My father was a tight man. He was cheap. He was so tight, his friends used to say you could feed him copper pennies and you would get electrical wire out the back end. <laughs> tight man. Tight man. A man can love a place on the map. He can feel at home in a place that is not, not the place of his raisins. And he can't explain why. And this was that place for my father. He, he used to love to look at these mountains. He used to love to, to hear the music that came out of these places. He used to like the string bands and towns surrounding Colorado Springs. He used to love the Native American dances. He used to love everything about this place. I can remember a little piece of fool's gold pyrite my father had given me from a trip he'd made into Colorado somewhere around Telluride. He'd given me this... This piece of fool's gold, I carried it wherever I went because my father told me it was good luck. That pyrite, I still got it somewhere. When my father passed, he gave no specific instructions on his funeral. He gave nothing specific for what he wanted. All he said is he wanted to be close to heaven on top Pike's Peak. Well... We didn't really know what to think, but we started talking about it the day after he passed. Because when a man dies and he doesn't leave you any instructions on what his last wishes are, you start to wonder about things. You start to replay conversations in your head. You start to wonder where he would want to be and what he would want said about him and how he would want things done. Went to that funeral home and the crematorium on the counter was a, it was a cardboard box. Woman behind the counter looked at us and she said, You must be the Dietrichs. My mother said, Yes, ma'am, we are. Is that him? And there was my father. All his life, he'd been a tall, strong man, auburn hair, nice looking. He was your all American boy. He was tall, he had legs that were, that were unnaturally large for his body, and, and a long, skinny neck. He had this way of laughing that sounded like Mr. Ed. 
He was strong. He was healthy. And now he was in a cardboard UPS box. Took that box underneath my arm. It was the heaviest thing I'd ever felt. They don't tell you that a body, once it's been cremated, is, is very heavy. Very heavy. A lot heavier than you'd think. They gave me some of his belongings. They gave me a gold crown that he'd had in his, in his mouth. They gave me a few of the things he'd had in his pockets. We kept that box inside our shed for a long time. We knew his wishes wanted to be on top of Pikes Peak, but we just couldn't bring ourselves to do it. Just couldn't bring ourselves to do it. Because that was saying goodbye. My mother wouldn't let his ashes inside because she said that she had tried to purge his spirit from our house. She'd opened up the windows to let his spirit escape. It was counterproductive, she said, to bring his remains inside. So he, he was outside in that shed, and I'd go out to that shed, and I'd talk to him. I'd talk to him a lot. He sat on the top shelf. I can see that shelf now, just next to the oil cans, his oil cans, empty oil cans. And I'd talk to him, and I'd tell him about myself and what I was going through. My uncle came into town one day. He had his car loaded down. Loaded down with stuff. My mother, she was packing things into the back of the car. And I asked what they were doing. They said, we're taking a trip this weekend. We're going to lay your father to rest once and for all. We drove to Colorado. It was a long drive. We were inside that, inside that vehicle with my uncle. My uncle is a man of few words. Doesn't say a whole lot. We drove and we all knew what we were going to do and daddy sat on my lap in that cardboard box. We all knew where we were going. We got into, got into Colorado. And the first feeling I, I could experience was this light-headed feeling and this ringing in my ears, that God-forsaken altitude. <laughs> now where I live in Florida, we are, we are below sea level. My, my house sits on a lot that is point five feet below sea level. But there in Colorado as a boy, it was, it was high above the sea. It was high above anything that I'd known, and it was close to heaven. And my uncle said, all right. One morning he said, all right, it's time. I put on a pair of nice clothes for my mother. We drove to the top of Pikes Peak Mountain. It was a rocky drive. There weren't, wasn't much greenery to be looking at. In fact, it wasn't the prettiest mountain I've ever seen. I often wondered to myself why my father wanted to be on top of that mountain. It was rocky. It wasn't very beautiful. I had this image in my mind of, of what it would go like. You, you think when you scatter someone's ashes that they're going to be caught by a poetic gust of wind and they're going to be whipped and swirled into little cyclones and, and fly off into nothingness. And there they will, they will be with us forever as molecules in the air and up in the clouds and in the sky. But that is not the way it worked. My uncle opened that cardboard box, that cardboard box with a Bowie knife. My father had wanted to be in that cardboard box because he was so tight and he just could not see wasting money on an urn. Dear old dad. My uncle cut that box open and he, he gave it to me. And there was a plastic bag inside full of, of tan and gray ash. 
I dumped it upside down. And there was no poetic gust of wind and there was no cyclone taking my father toward heaven. My father, because he had been out in the shed exposed to too much humidity, had compacted together like a Kigo brick. And so my father fell several hundred feet downward on that cliff and he bounced a few times and crumbled. And his ash mixed with the rocks of Pikes Peak Mountain. And my mother, she looked across, across that scenic vista and she said, he's gone. He's really gone. But you see, he wasn't gone, not for me. No, I really didn't let him go that day like I probably should have. I carried him with me for a long time. Carried him with me on my first date. My first date. Carried him, carried him with me on my, my, first, my first car purchase. It was a green truck. He was there for that. Carried him with me when I got my first construction job. Carried him with me when I got married. He was in that little chapel with me, floating just above my head, maybe way up in the rafters, looking down at me. My uncle had driven six hours from Atlanta to be at my wedding just to ruin my photographs. <laughs> Somewhere in the back of those photographs is my father, I think, probably looking down at me. He just can't see him, but he's there. I hadn't been to his grave in many, many years. But I just went. My wife and I got to the top of Pikes Peak Mountain. My ears started to ring so bad and my head started to feel like I was, like I was going to, to die. I got sick to my stomach and I, I felt like I had low blood sugar. It was an unpleasant feeling. I don't guess I've ever been that close to heaven before since the last time I've been to the top of Pikes Peak. But you certainly are close to heaven and the presence of the Almighty must be so strong that it makes you sick and lightheaded and dizzy. And I looked across that vista where my father's ashes still sit and over countless rains and snows have been embedded into the fibers of the earth. He's still there. And I swear I felt a little gust of wind. It wasn't anything that you'd call poetic, but it was just a little, little, little breeze feel on the back of my neck and it passed me right on by and it kept on going into into eternity he loved that place he loved he loved Pike's Peak more than anything and I said daddy you can go you can go now Thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host, Sean Dietrich, and it has been a real pleasure. That music here behind me is Thunder and Rain. Aaron Pete Lukes, Pete Weber, Ian Hagel, Chris Herbs, Natalie Padilla, and Kevin Matthews. To find anything more about what they do, you can visit Thunder and Rain Music, and be sure to check out their new album, Start Believing, on iTunes. To find anything more about what I do, you can visit seanofthesouth.com. And while you're there, I hope you drop me a line, because I love to hear from my friends. And speaking of friends... Friends, change is inevitable, except from vending machines. Adios. Adios.